Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We have a topical message this morning. Before I begin, um, always thinking, how can I shorten the messages a little bit? Which, please, no applause. (laughs) If I stop thinking about God and the Bible so much, I could do it. I try to shave down these sermons and these messages and studies, and it's just so much information. What do you do? Do you bury it? Do you share it? Um, It is a struggle that I have. If you'd like to donate money to me for this, uh, see me at the end of the service. Small bills, please. Well, enough of that does not count towards my time, so if we can make sure. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. In a moment, we will stand and read verses 15 through 18. Colossians, chapter 1. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 15, Paul is speaking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Please be seated. The title of this morning's message is Descriptions of Christ. And I've chosen this section of Scripture, or led to this section of Scripture, as the flagship verse Because Paul, writing to the Colossians, was demonstrating to them from the Scripture and from his own experience with Christ, the supremacy of Christ above all others. As those few verses we just stood and read from Colossians 1 make very clear, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that on earth, and he just continues to develop it. This is the season where we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Today would be, uh, we would call it Palm Sunday. It is the day we celebrate the Lord's last Sunday before he was crucified, when he rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people laid down their garments and the palm branches before him, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, the one who saves. Most of the people thought he was coming to deliver deliver them from Gentile rule, the Roman Empire at that time, and that he would establish his messianic kingdom. Of course, uh, they were off in their understanding, which brings the question to mind, uh, how much did they know him? They saw his miracles. 
Many of them heard how he taught and what he taught, his tones, his expressions, his gestures, his mannerisms. But did they know who he was? Well, some of them did. And it's very important that Christians know who Christ is. The Bible tells us who he is, and it describes him. And it does this in very beautiful ways. One is through the name and the titles that belong to him. They are descriptive. Knowing and serving Christ. That becomes the quest of every believer. Once we come to know him, we, Lord, what, as Paul, when he was converted, who are you, Lord? That was his first question. His second question was, what do you want me to do? Unfortunately, I think a lot of people want the salvation. They get the salvation. They never bother to ask Christ what he wants them to do. Maybe they go about doing what they want to do. Maybe they do nothing. I, I don't know. I cannot speak for all of them, but I know it happens. Paul, writing to the Philippians, here's a man who spent the rest of his life at his conversion to telling people about Jesus Christ as much as he could tell them. And he writes to the Philippians from jail that I may know him, Paul writes in chapter 3 of the Philippian letter, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And he goes on and just continues, you know, uh, this... Uh, this outpouring of his desire to know Jesus Christ more and more all the time and to live it out, to live out what he knows. Jeremiah, I don't know exactly what circumstances. I know some of them that may have influenced the Lord putting this on his heart. Perhaps Jeremiah was just sick and tired of all the people playing church, playing with God's name and really not meaning any of it. And God speaks through the prophet and says to the people, Jeremiah 9, thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says Yahweh. So the emphasis, of course, to the prophet is get to know God. Not the things that you have, not the life that you're living, but be concerned very much with knowing and then serving the God of your salvation. And so within the descriptive name, Titles of Christ, we gain knowledge of God. This never gets old. It doesn't come to a place, you don't come to a place in your Christian walk, okay, I've now learned enough about God. I'm good. I don't need any more. You know, the idea is to have our cup run over, to have God pour into us more than we can handle as far as the blessings of our relationship with him. Now, a name, of course, that identifies us. A title tells a little bit more about us than just the name. Uh, some of the background, some of where, where we are going, maybe where we have come from. Uh, some people are, are born into a title. Some others earn it, combination thereof. And throughout Scripture, names were not only labels. They were revelations, oftentimes, of a parent's hope 
of the child. In other words, the parent would not just say, you know, I like that name. That's what I'm going to name my child. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, unfortunately for me, that's how my mother slapped the name I have on me. It's a magnificent name because I have it. (laughs) But I sure would have liked a biblical name. But I didn't bring you here this morning to talk about my mom. I didn't bring you here at all. Your vehicles did. Anyway, uh, throughout Scripture, we see this. Just take a, a, just maybe one or two Ezekiel. His name means whom God strengthens. Well, the parents wanted God to strengthen their child as the child developed in life and served the Lord. The ancient peoples hoped the child would grow into it, fulfill the meaning. Many times they did not. And sometimes they did. Daniel, God is my judge. I stand before him. I'm always mindful of God. I'm always aware that I will have to answer to God. And so I will live my life in such a way that I do not have to fear how I will stand before God. That's the name of Daniel. There was Jacob and Esau. They were, you know, Jacob was redheaded and he was named, you know, redhead. And Jacob, you know, grabbed his heel as they were holding the children. And the parents said, you know, you little stinker, you know. And that's what they named him, you know, the little heel catcher. Uh, That was uh, not a name that uh, God had a better name for him. I'll, I'll put it that way. And named him Israel much later. Moses was saved out of water. He floated on water to, Sarah, to Pharaoh's daughter, and she fished him out of the Nile, as the song goes, and she named him Moses, rescued from water. And these names, of one of my point is, many of them uh, had hopes in the names, but they were significant. Almost all of them had some significance to them, something that is, was connected with their birth and their life. From my studies, it turns out that, at least it is said, I've not counted them myself, there are over 700 identified descriptive names and titles in the Bible for Jesus Christ. I mean, such as, you know, the ones that we might miss in Haggai, the prophet. You know, he is the desire of the nations. He's really what, what humanity needs. Uh, little descriptive names that are referring to Messiah to come, to Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his distinction. Sets him apart from everyone else. Oh, there were others that were anointed. There were kings that were anointed. Aaron the high priest was anointed. But none of them were anointed as the Messiah, the coming one. The one that would save his people. So Jesus is his name, Christ his distinction, Lord is his title. But there is much more to him than what we have in these descriptive names and titles. There's so much more to know about him that helps us adore him further. And, in fact, with him, there is a need for more description than what his name, Jesus, means. Of course, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. It is a, a, a name that uh, really started with Moses taking the name of Hoshea, who is, we know as Joshua, and the name, uh, it's coupling the name Joshua with Yahweh, Yahoshua, Yahweh saves. And when you, that's the Hebrew, but when you move it into the Greek language, it it's becomes Jesus as we know it. 
He is the king of kings. He is the savior of the world. This is what the Bible describes him as. These are titles it gives him. And still, with all of these descriptions and titles, you cannot exhaust the meaning of who he is. But they do help. Revelation 19.12, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. There's so much more to Christ. Name is nature in Scripture. And hopefully, uh, in our lives also, the name of Christ upon our lives. The nature of Christ becomes ours. We become Christ-like. But this many crowns, it says, he is, you know, on his head were many crowns. This is the vast and immense splendor that belongs to him. No one can wear this many crowns. No one can have such magnificence except the Christ, the Son of the Invisible God. And so, as I mentioned, typically name in Scripture stands for nature. We see it illustrated in the negative in this case. This is the husband of Abigail. Unfortunately, uh, her husband was a total fool. He didn't have to be so, but he chose to be so. His name was Nabal. And that name means fool. And we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. And folly is with him. That man lived up to a negative nature. And he was. He was a scoundrel. He was a difficult person. But it doesn't have to be in the negative. It can go into the positive. It's up to us. And God, again, has revealed aspects of his nature by the names and titles that he uses for his son, for us, to us. So that God is not learning from, from these titles and names. We're the ones that are supposed to benefit. His names and titles describe him. I don't know if I mentioned that this morning's message is entitled, Descriptions of Christ. And, of course, uh, from the Word, from the Scriptures, hopefully, we're going to gain these, uh, this expanded information about our Lord. Even the Holy Spirit is given to us as the Holy Spirit. It is so descriptive. It is so short, to the point. Self, it is a self-defining name. He is pure, and He is spirit. In other words, he is holy and he is limitless because he is the Holy Spirit. He is without form and yet there he is, fully in existence and available to sinners. And so a few titles from the scripture. First, the name Jesus, of course. Mary was told that she was going to have a child of the Holy Spirit and that she was to name him Jesus. And quite a few times in Scripture, God shows up and says, this is what the child's name is going to be. And, of course, this is what happened with Christ. And then the Lord went to Joseph and told him, Matthew chapter 1, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so there's the name, Yahweh saves, and there's a description in this case that follows right behind it. He will save his people from their sins. The ones that do not want his salvation will not be his people. 
but the ones who want his salvation and come to him become his people and are saved from his sins. Jesus is the name that God the Son bore while he walked the earth. And we know him by this name. It is the name that tells of his purpose. His purpose for humanity. And that name, Jesus, meaning so much to us, that name will cause all to bow before it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under earth. It's comprehensive. There's quite a bit of authority in the one who holds that name. And all will bow. Even Satan bows to Christ. He is under the authority of Christ. So he objects to it, but he has no choice because the sovereignty of Christ is that great. He is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, Matthew makes this comment, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, end quote. Now, he had just gotten through saying that the angel told Joseph in the dream that the child will be named Jesus. And then Matthew, uh, Matthew adds, because this is God with us. The, the descriptions are increasing. And as we move through the New Testament, they're, they're in the Old Testament. I'm adhering mostly to the New Testament this morning. But it expands even further. By telling us the virgin shall bear a child and God will be with us, God is saying, I stand with people in their circumstances. I am here. I am amongst them. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That, that means Christ is the creator. And this creator comes in human form and bears the name Jesus and is called Emmanuel. He is also called the only begotten of the Father. Very unique. One of a kind son of God. You can say, well, we're all sons of God. Those who come to God and he is their father who come through Christ. We can say we're all sons of God in a very general and broad way. But there is only one self-begotten son that comes from the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You can't say that about anybody else and not, not get laughed at. The Son is of the Father alone. Not made, not created, but begotten. In other words, the Son, the eternal Son, emanates... From the Father, comes forth from the Father. Jesus speaks about this in John 17, where he says, uh, he says to the Father that, he, that his intention is to return to the glory they had before the world was, was, was founded. He's called the Son of Man. Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Thank you, Lord. Because if he did not come to save that which was lost and doomed to punishment, for sin, for breaking God's commandments, for going against God's will, if he did not come to do something about that, we would be doomed. But he did come. 
And so Matthew, again, 124, uh, sorry, 1811, well, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Luke adds he came to seek and to save. He put effort into this. These things are teaching us about the Christ. You may be very familiar with these things, but how many people do you know that are not? How many people do you know that may benefit greatly by hearing these things from you? And using the word man, the son of man, Jesus takes his stand with sinners. He takes his stand with humanity. Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 53, the chapter that talks about the sufferings that Messiah would go through, which many of the Jews either dismissed or did not understand and wanted no part of. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, speaking of the Christ, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressors. Well, he had to become a man to do that. And that is precisely what he did. He is called the Holy One of God. This one is interesting because this is a man that uh, has a demonic spirit, and the spirit is speaking through the man. It says, uh, we'll pick it up, uh, Matthew 1, uh, verse 24. Jesus is about to rid this man of this demon, and the demon says, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that was true. And Jesus said, well, you know what? You're not going to get to talk about this anymore. You be quiet. And, of course, he cast the demon out. But one of the great and profound lessons from that verse in Matthew 1.24 that we should share with unbelievers, the demons recognized who Christ is. What's your problem? How come as a human being you can't get it? The demon said, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus did not say, oh, you flatter me. He received it because it was true. Sinless in his nature, pure, unspoiled by transgression, unspoiled by evil or hell. Jesus said in John 14, the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me. He had nothing. There was no, Jesus could not stumble. He could not sin. When he was went into the wilderness, it was not, oh, is he going to mess up? No way. That's the whole point of his confrontation with Satan is to show there's nobody like me. Satan has nothing in him. It was a demonstration of his divinity. There was really no opportunity there for Satan to have him fall whatsoever. He is called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now remember that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about the resurrection. And Paul is talking about Christ who gives life, who was crucified, but never died. Well, he died, of course, in the physical sense that he departed this world. But, of course... You, you can't kill him. He gave up his spirit. Only two men ever in the history of mankind are without human father. One formed from the dust in Genesis chapter 2. 
God shaped man out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into him, and man became a living being. And if God did not breathe into him, he just would have made a big lump of clay. It would have been no life. Of course, the other one without a human father was placed on earth through the Holy Spirit in the womb of a sinner, which is even more of a remarkable story. Had God not breathed into Adam, he would not have become a living being. Had God not put himself, as we could say, in the womb of Mary, the virgin, we would not be living beings after this life. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the first of the new race of redeemed. He led the way. And so when you talk about him being uh, the first the firstborn, and I'll get to that verse in a little bit, which is our text. It's something that has to be said with a bit of zeal and excitement. It's not a casual thing. Oh, uh, yeah, Jesus Christ, firstborn. It is something that I think when, the, when these men wrote uh, these scriptures, the spirit was flowing in them and they could feel it. I, anybody that has ever crafted a sermon understands that, if, if they've done it in the spirit. They know that as they're writing and as they're thinking and working through it, they can sense and feel God working with them, telling them what to say on many points. In fact, we get in trouble when we stray from that leading in the pulpit. We can say the wrong thing. We can say the right thing the wrong way. Or we say the wrong thing, period. The importance of remaining under the influence of the Holy Spirit And that excitement that goes along with it. The last Adam, the first of the new race, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, when God was good and ready, because he knew it was the best moment in human history, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4, 4, born of a woman, born under the law. That is the virgin birth, of course, that born of a woman. You wouldn't have to put that there if it was a natural birth. You could just say he was born. But there was more to his story, and it tracks back, of course, to Mary. So he demonstrated life, uh, the life of man, as God intended it to be. So if you were to look at Adam after he fell into sin, you you would see what less than what God wanted him to be. But if you looked at Christ... He was perfect in every way. He's just what God intended to be. Thus the reference to him being the last Adam, who, by way of the resurrection, cross and resurrection, is the first of a new race who are redeemed, who come through him. Through the last Adam, we will receive our spiritual bodies in the resurrection. And that is what is meant by what Paul is talking about there in 1 Corinthians 15, telling uh, the believers that we will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. And then he is also called the Alpha and the Omega. Also the first and the last. Subtle little differences now that's given to us in the Revelation, the usage of Greek words, but it's the same meaning. Revelation 21, verse 6 And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. 
thirst and comes to him, of course. The beginning and the ending of all things. So if you went all the way back to eternity past, there he would be. If you go fast forward all the way to eternity forward, there he is. He has always been. He is self-existent. Before his entrance into humanity, he had already existed in eternity past, without beginning, without ending. Jesus, in direct affirmation of his deity, in other words, coming out and saying, I am God, three times uh, in Isaiah, this is quoted of, this is said of Yahweh. That Yahweh is the beginning and the end. There is no other God. Well, then we come through the New Testament and in Revelation, four times this is said of Christ. Christ says this of himself, linking himself with Isaiah's comments, saying to us, Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ in the New Testament, indicating the oneness in the Godhead, their eternal pre-existence, which to us is almost mind-boggling. The way I handle it is this. If you could go all the way back, as far as you could go, was nothing is created, all of the space, as far as you could go, that is God. That is Him. It is under Him. It is all in touch with Him. He is linked to it all. None of it is outside of Him. Uh, it's not to say that the space itself is God. God is there in that space. Absolute supremacy. He is called the bread of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, right to the point. What does that mean? I am the bread of life. We celebrate this at the communion table. This bread of life is essential for spiritual survival. Just as real bread, real food is essential for physical survival. It's not the only thing. We need more than just food. But with Christ, it is a sermon. That you don't live spiritually without me. You must partake of me. You must have me get inside of you. Manna was given to the people in the wilderness to sustain their lives. They could not sustain it themselves there. All one needed to do was pick it up. Lay hold of it. And by laying hold of it, not only taking hold of it, but consuming it. Taking it in. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Six, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. There's a reminder there to fight for faith. If you just lay back and think your faith is going to come to you because you want it, uh, you're going to be disappointed. And if you fight for faith, you're going to still be somewhat disappointed, but you will be victorious. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Interesting. Don't take any word out of that sentence in our English language. Fight the good fight, not the dirty fight, not the bad fight. It is a righteous fight. He continues, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. He's telling this to Timothy for Timothy's sake and for the congregation Timothy is pastoring. And he goes ahead and develops it further in the following verses. Which I'm not going to read. You can look it up. 1 Timothy 6, 18 through 19. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on the manna. Lay hold on the bread. Take in Christ. Not enough to just know about him. 
You've got to take hold. You've got to fight for it. He is called the light of the world. John chapter 9, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's still in the world. Through us, incidentally. As just a side note. That light was not snuffed out on Calvary. It continues. In Pentecost, there was the sound of a mighty wind, and there were tongues of fire, like tongues of fire on the men as they spoke. Wind and fire together. You put wind and fire together, you put oxygen and fire together, you have a torch. You burn through steel. This is an interesting discovery. The light of the world showing the way out of this present darkness. That's Christ. Yeah, we, we are all familiar with I am the way, the truth, and the life. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> speaking of Christ, Paul says, who gave himself for our sins. We got that. That he might deliver us from this present age. According to the will of our God and Father. This present age, this present darkness, Christ delivers us from it because he is the light of the world. He is called the chief cornerstone. That's a sure foundation. <clears throat> you don't want to be in a building with a flawed foundation, a faulty foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the descriptive title. Who is Christ? He is the chief cornerstone, but there's so much more. Just one, one description of him. Here's what Christ himself said about foundations. Matthew 7, as he's closing up the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, which is built on pretty much everything he said in that sermon. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock, which, of course, is another description of Christ. This part in Matthew where he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, you could read that and say, Lord, I want to do your word, but I don't. Does that disqualify me? Am I no longer benefiting from you being my foundation? But we know the scripture teaches us in the most important things. Where there is a will, there is acceptance, even if there is not the performance thereof. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. It blew it away. It's not... <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> it's not, aha, uh -huh, just testing your faith. It is, no, it's much more. It blows it away completely because of what Christ has done. Not because of who we are, but who we want to be in Jesus Christ. I, I, you know, our salvation is so protected. It is such an invincible, it is such a big deal. And so Satan throws so much at us because of that. And for some it works because some people see Christians fail and they think, therefore, Christ is not worthy of their attention. But they are wrong because Christ never said that they were to bow down to us, but to him. 
He continues in Matthew. He says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I mentioned to you that God receives the intention of a genuine, of, from a contrite heart. When David wanted to build a temple, God said to him, no, you can't do it. You are associated with war and blood, and I don't want that association with my house. But, David, because it was in your heart, because you wanted to do this for me, I'm going to receive that part of it. It's going to be like you built the house. You see, that's why I could stand here and say to you, yeah, I read these words, and I say, Lord, I want to do them, uh, do what you say, but I fail. God says, I've commented on that. I've addressed that in my servant David and others. And by the way, if it was an absolute statement, nobody. If God, if you counted sins, who would stand, writes the psalmist. This has to do with those who want no part of this chief cornerstone. The judgments that are found in the verse I read from Matthew 7. But the blessings are for those washed in the blood. That's the purpose of the blood of Christ, to wash the sins. How many? All of them. Quite profound. He's called the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. He's a provider. He's a protector. A lot of husbands can be providers and protectors, but are they caretakers? See, the good shepherd is a caretaker. He doesn't only provide for the sheep and guard them. He takes care of them. And I think that is uh, ideal for love. I mean, parents, to have a parent who just provides and protects but does not love, something critical is missing. That's what Paul was saying. If I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, if I don't care, if I have other motives, it doesn't benefit. There is a breakdown. This good shepherd not only provides and protects to repeat myself, but he cares for us. We think that because we go through hardship that he's stopped caring, and that is not the case. He is caring for us as we battle out life and not extracting us from the hardships that attend a cursed life, a life under the curse of sin. It was a foe of the sheep that brought about the shepherd's death. You see, the good shepherd died for the sheep. He didn't die because he did something wrong. He died because he did something right. And we mustn't lose sight of these things. It is the shepherd's deity that brought him up from that death, the firstborn of the, res of the resurrected, the firstborn from the dead. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. i got to pause here and say, as I was preparing this, <clears throat> I don't know how it's going to be received. And I really can't let myself be too, too concerned with that. I mean, I cannot have the wrong attitude. But what I can do is ask myself, am I enjoying this? After all these years in ministry, I just enjoy these verses. And I enjoy them because they're true. I enjoy them because I know where they come from. 
I enjoy them because I know what they mean. I enjoy them because of the promise they hold for me personally when I'm done with this life. When I hang up this life, life begins. But until then is work. One of my favorite quotes from G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite Bible teachers who's long been with the Lord, was asked about his success. And his response was, work, work, and more work. That's how he became the Bible teacher that he is. And uh, that's where we are in this life. But in paradise, work won't be work. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of this good shepherd who gave himself for us, writes Paul, that he might redeem us and buy us back from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, not lazy, or just energized to do it. How many times, again, uh, my own life in preparing a sermon, I'm just tired and I don't want to do it anymore. I want to go out and play. But I've got so much work to do. It is an honor. It's tough. But I think it's worth it. He is called the Lamb of God. John chapter 1. This is John the, uh, John the uh, baptizer. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said to his disciples, to John's disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a moment. I mean, to say such a thing, you couldn't say that about anybody else. That this person coming, that you see on his way, takes away the sin of the world. It's incredible. His disciples had to be scratching their heads. Not one of the Old Testament sacrifices volunteered to be sacrificed. Christ volunteered before the foundations of the the world. He knew that sin was going to attack man. And he knew he had a response, a counterattack. And because of the cross, God the Father can will out of existence all your sins. They're all washed away, the blood of the Lamb, who paid for us. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now we come back to our text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, which he paid for, incidentally, with his own blood, the Bible tells us, who is the beginning. Pause there. The Christian is to love the church with all of her blemishes and struggles and problems. We are to love the church as Christ loved the church. And Satan is committed to getting you and me to have some indifferent feeling or disgusted feeling against the assembling of believers. We're living in a time where he has launched a full-blown Tet offensive against the church, the assembly of believers. And uh, he he has caused so much damage, that's what he does. But the righteous will come through stronger. Satan will pay for his mistakes because the righteous will be developed through the Lord by surviving his attacks. 
He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. That's Paul's message to, to the Colossian church. He never visited the Colossae, it seems like. But he heard from one of the citizens of that church that these false doctrines, the Gnostic teachings, were creeping in. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. And he just blasts them with the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. Don't let, you, don't let them trick you. Do not let them lead you away from Christ with the philosophies of men. You are complete in him. Something many professed Christians really don't believe. I don't think they care for it. They go to the world when they should be going to Christ for many things. He alone leads us into the resurrection, into eternal life. That's what he is saying here in this 18th verse of Colossians 1. He is the head of the church. That means, well, let me put it like this. No other part of the body is to give the body orders except the head. When the body takes orders from a body part, it is spastic. Something's not right. It is supposed to be under the authority of the head. And Christ is the head. And we follow him into paradise, into heaven. Next, he is also called the high priest. Of course, this has in mind the Hebrew high priest. The letter to Hebrews Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. You see, you catch, you catch the emotion in that? <clears throat> Who writes that way? But someone that has fire burning in their belly. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He like, throws it out there. How can you not be excited about these things if your salvation is real? The role of the Hebrew priest was to bring the sins and cares of the people before the throne of God. Whereas the prophet would bring the word of God to the people. One was, you know, going up towards God. The other was coming down towards man. The priest was also to present the sacrifices. Christ presented the perfect sacrifice for our sins, of course, himself. There's no higher approach to the throne of God than the high priest. And the hands of the Hebrew priests would be blood-stained as they executed their office. Well, they also executed the sacrificial lambs. But as they carried out their work, they would slaughter the animal and they would butcher the animal. And they did not have machines as we don't today. Today when men hunt and they kill an animal and they, they cut it open and they take out the entrails and their hands get bloody. So it was, when you would go down to the house of God, you would see men at work. You would see blood. You would smell meat cooking. If you got close enough to the temple, you could smell the incense. There would be no doubt that sacrifice, sacrificial blood, was being shed. And this comes along with being the high priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ. As the high priest had on his shoulders... Stones, six stones on each shoulder, inscribed on those stones were the names of the tribes of Israel. The burdens and the cares of the people were to be on the shoulders of the high priest. And so it is with our high priest, 
also. He is called a mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God and one mediator. That is a go-between. Between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 verse 1. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Nobody is closer to God the Father than God the Son. That's part of the picture. By Him alone, we come into God's presence, to the throne room of God, redeemed and forgiven forever. Not by angels. There's no angel that mediates for us. Not by some canonized saint of any religion. Not by Mary. There is one mediator, the man Jesus Christ. That's what my Bible says. I choose to believe that. Before I believe anybody else, I choose to believe that. There's nothing tricky about that. There's no Greek or Hebrew that's going to take that meaning away. Praying to anyone else is forbidden and may actually disqualify the one who is doing it. He is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, 16. And he has on his robe... And on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. More than King of the Jews. You know, when the Pilate had him crucified, he put over his head, you know, this is King of the Jews. Oh, he is. No slight on the Jewish people at all. But he is also King of the Gentiles. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Others have had that title through history. Not on this level. This is preeminent. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the only superpower. He is it. He is called the Savior. We all know this. And as I'm, again, in preparation, I'm enjoying it. That which I first received, I share with you. That's the pattern we're given by the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. This is Mary speaking. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, she said. In other words, she's delivered, and she knows it, from death's doom. This is a confession as much as it is a doctrinal statement. She's saying, I'm a sinner. To have a Savior is to have sin and the need to be saved. And she makes that very clear. Again, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. This time, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not a disconnect there. It is saying, our Savior is God. Titus 2.13. All that God is, Jesus is also. All that the Father is, Jesus is also. There is this, uh, this one of the magnificent features of the Trinity. When God appears again, it will be in Christ Jesus. And that's what you know. He will appear first for his church at the rapture. And then he appears with his church at the return of Christ. And so when Titus, when he writes to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God. Well, when does God the Father appear? It's the Son. He appears in the Son. 
because he is equal. And so i closing with this last point. The glorious and different descriptions of one person, this Christ Jesus. We, uh, we know him more than crucified now because of these kind of verses, the stories that go along in the scripture. To us, he is more than crucified. He is more than resurrected, actually. He is glorified. More than crucified, he is glorified. All the power has converged in our view. Enough of it, not all of it, but enough of it. And through all eternity, we will learn more and more about our Savior. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, maybe a lot of them did not know so much about you when they were calling out Hosanna on that day that you rode into Jerusalem. But we know so much about you because we have your word to us. You are telling us about you so that we could adore you, so that we could serve you, so that we could share what we know. Uh, May you find we who believe doing something useful with the things that you give to us, that you reveal to us. May you not find us burying our treasure. May you find us looking for ways to do something. May you find a submitted spirit in our heart. May you find us willing to row in the right direction with others and not have a resisting spirit. If you have been listening online or here in the church and you've never opened your heart up to this Christ who describes himself throughout as the only Savior, as God the Son, as the one who loves you so much that he volunteered to die to keep you from hell. If you would like to benefit From the salvation of Jesus Christ, you have to confess it. You have to admit that you are a sinner, that you've broken his law. You have to submit to him and surrender. If you make this prayer in earnest, God will receive you and he will be your savior. If he does not become your savior, he will remain your judge and you will not survive. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I've broken your laws. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. There is no one else who is worthy. And I ask that you not only forgive me of my sin, but that from this day forward, you would rule over my life. And I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they confess it without shame. If they're in the church, may they make it known to the pastors at the end when we dismissed service. And if they're watching or listening online, may they have the courage to call in and share with one of the pastors that they've just opened their heart up to the salvation that you offer. All these things we commit to your hands in Jesus' name.
Amen.